The Biblical Foundations Bible Study, online at biblicalfoundationsbiblestudy.com. Taught by Chris Martin, this course has been created to demonstrate the importance of biblical literacy in the 21st century. glad everybody's here this morning. We're continuing our study in the life and teaching of the Apostle Paul. And we've been in uh, the book of Colossians for the last two weeks, and we're going to be there again next week as we finish up our study. And I think you're going to enjoy this lesson because last week we got into the practical aspects of Paul's theology. This week it goes really, really deep into how you live the life that he's been teaching about theologically to this church at Colossae. But let me just put it into context real quick in case you weren't here the last couple of Sundays. We're taking his life chronologically. He's finished all of his missionary journeys. He's under house arrest in Rome. Uh, he's written a couple of letters that we've studied. We don't know the order that he wrote them in, but he wrote, wrote back to the church at Colossae, which was about 120 miles east of Ephesus. Two weeks ago, I showed you the map, showed you uh, what it was near. Uh, the churches that are close to it are those that are listed in Revelations chapter 2 and 3 that the Apostle John wrote to in that part of the world. Back in Paul's day, there probably would have been a couple of thousand people there. It's relatively small, uh, but it was a vibrant Christian church that Paul never visited, but uh, that people were converted probably in Ephesus when he was there for several years and then went back home and started the church. Today, there's nothing there but a big hill. Never been archaeologically excavated, uh, so it's not likely you're going to go visit it during your uh, journeys in, uh, in Turkey. Uh, but the issues in this church, we know from the book and we know from other extra-biblical literature, was devoted to the fact that this church did what a lot of people today do, and that is they define themselves as spiritual, not necessarily Christian, but spiritual or religious, and then make it a uh, Luby's cafeteria-type religion, where they pick a little bit of this, and they pick a little bit of that, and they pick a little bit of this over here. So in their audience, they were picking from a little bit of Greek mythology, a little bit from Greek philosophy, a little bit from Roman politics, a little bit from Judaism, a little bit from Christianity. And Paul is writing to them saying, uh-uh, stop it. There's one way to God. And there's one way to live within that, that confines or construct of life with Christ. And so he explains what that means. His theme and message is real simple. It's all about Jesus Christ. He is all. He's in all. We're going to cover this verse today, and you'll see in context what that means. His evidence of authentic Christianity, I taught you from chapter 1, was real simple. It is sharing ourselves and sharing our faith. The reason why we don't get yanked up into heaven when we get saved or get baptized is we're supposed to stay here to share ourselves with other people, share our faith with other people, and the goals of that, I taught you, are to be able to see the world as God sees it. That's the definition of wisdom and spiritual wisdom, seeing the world as God sees it in order to use our spiritual gifts, to bear fruit, as the book of Galatians talks about. We then applied that a little bit by him starting chapter 1 by describing the person and work of Jesus Christ. He is God. He was not created. He is the creator. He's a part of God the Father, a part of God the Spirit, but he's distinct. We talked about what all that means and how hard it is to wrap our brains around that. We then took a deep dive and we talked about our perspective on life's problems. 
the fact we obsess over some problems. We can't get over some problems. We're stuck in the past. And Paul gives us the right perspectives on life problems, which is don't dwell on them. If they're in God's past, as far as we're concerned, they ought to be in our past and they ought to stay there. But then we also dealt the end of last week with our thought dangers, fantasizing about the life we don't have longing for a wealth we don't have, longing for a prestige we don't have, longing for relationships we don't have, longing for something else. And the perspective there looked at salvation, it looked at how God sees us, it looked at how we deal with those temptations and our sin nature that wants us to fantasize about something God has not given us, thinking that if we were God, here's how we'd change it. And Paul says, no, you can't do that. God gave you what he gave you for a reason. you got to learn how to live in the moment. I want to go back just a second and pick up on what Paul's going to do a deep dive on. In verses 12, 13, and 14, he talks about this idea of resurrection. And he talks about in the past tense, we were raised with him. Uh, talks about us in verse 13 being dead. God made us alive. And then in the end of verse 14, he talks about being alive together with him, how we deal with forgiveness and sin and things like that. In chapter 3, he takes that concept and he dives down. And we're dealing with the reality, as I put on your outline, of being dead while living and living while dead. And this is hard to wrap our brain around because a healthy human psychology sees ourselves as unified. We see ourselves as one, right? I've got a body, I've got a mind, I've got a soul. We see ourselves as one. Biblically, that's not true. Biblically, there is a healthy dualism that says your soul has gone through a radical transformation. In fact, your soul died. The soul you were born with died, and you were then transformed. You were made new. You were born new, with a phrase we use as Christians as born again, and it's a reference to our soul. But because nothing happens to our body, we have trouble figuring out what that means, and we have trouble figuring out how do I live in light of this healthy duality. So this lesson is going to do, do a deep dive on what I call resurrection living, because when we think of Christ, we have no problem with that duality, right? Christ is always one. He's always the same. Christ throughout eternity was the same Christ in Bethlehem, uh, the same Christ that grew up in Nazareth, the same Christ that lived in Galilee and Judea. We have no problems with that. Died on the cross, resurrected, that's Christ. But in our own lives, we have a huge problem wrapping our brain around this idea of what does it mean when Scripture says We've been resurrected. And you think about it and you go, I wasn't aware I died unless some of you have had unique medical issues, right? Some in our class have literally died. Uh, but that's not what he's talking about here. So we're going to do a little deep dive on this idea of resurrection living. And if you go back and you look at what Scripture says about us as Christians, it uses a little phraseology that helps us put this into context. Hebrews chapter 11 talks about us being strangers, us being converted Christians, as strangers or aliens in this land, in this world. And so you read that and it's like, what exactly does that mean? In uh, Philippians chapter 3, Paul talks about citizenship in heaven. We no longer have a citizenship in this world. Uh, 1 Peter chapter 2 it says we're aliens, we're foreigners 
in this world, even though we were born here. And so we try to try to figure out what in the world is that talking about? What they're talking about is exactly what Paul mentions here and what he goes through in almost every book he ever wrote. What I'm trying to do is help you understand Paul's way of thinking because Paul's way of thinking ought to be our way of thinking because he was so close to Christ. He was so close to what it means to live the Christian life that the things he shares gives us some insight. So it should not escape our notice that he hits on this in his first book in Galatians. He hits on it in the second missionary journey in First and Second Corinthians. He hits on it in the third missionary journey in Romans. He hits on it in Philippians that we talked about a couple of weeks ago. He hits on it here really deep. So he's taken these same concepts of resurrection living, and here he helps this church, which was not deep in theology, go deep in practicality. How, what does it mean to live a life that has a soul that's already been resurrected? So I hope as we go through this and we think about this, this helps you live life you know, Monday through Sunday and try to figure out what it means to live this life that it kind of describes metaphysically that we have trouble uh, talking about. We're going to be in chapter 3 this week. We're going to look at chapters 1 through 17. Next week is a continuation of resurrection living applied to marriage, applied to family, applied to work. And so next week we're going to take these same concepts and just go more deep in those little particular areas. But he starts in chapter 3 by telling us what he's talking about. He says in verse 1, if, or you could translate that, since then you've been raised with Christ. He starts with this idea that we're struggling with. Because you read this and you're like, huh? I woke up this morning. I can tell you about when I got saved. I can tell you about when I got baptized. But what does it mean I've been raised with Christ? Because you look at that and practically you're like, I didn't get raised up with Christ. I became a Christian. But what does this mean I got raised up with Christ? Let me start here with a couple of things. Number one, the reality that in the mind of God, the fact in the mind of God, our souls got resurrected with Jesus Christ at the same time he did. That's a little hard to wrap our brain around because none of us were born back then. But this is saying in the mind of God, the fact is... Our soul at the moment of salvation was the equivalent of being resurrected with Christ when he was resurrected from the dead. Now, we're going to talk in the rest of this lesson about what that means because that's a powerful concept. Because if I said, describe to me Jesus Christ today, right, for the rest of the class, you guys could brainstorm on that. He's at the right hand of Father. He's got power over sin because he was resurrected. He's got this. He's got that. There's all kinds of things. But we don't think of ourselves the same way. And that's why Paul starts here, because we've got to think of ourselves in the same way as the person that we're putting ourselves into and that has put ourselves into us, which is resurrected. A little cross-reference here. Write down the cross-reference of Romans 6.3. Romans 6.3, he taught this to us earlier. Do you not know that all of us who've been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? In other words, we died with him. Our soul died with him. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. That language is what is repeated when the pastor baptizes people in the morning service. They use that same language. It's a picture of us dying, being put under the water to drown, being coming up out of the water in baptism is the picture of the newness of life, and the language the pastors use when they baptize people comes out of that verse. So it's a picture that we can all look at and go, 
I have trouble understanding my soul. I'm self-aware, I'm self-existent, but I have trouble understanding my soul. So that picture gives us the idea. You may not understand it, but it happened to you. The soul that you were born with, born into sin, died. It was executed. And a brand new soul, a brand new life was put into your soul. You may not have felt it. You may have felt it. I don't know what your salvation experience was like. But it happened to you, and it starts with the reality, the fact of that responsibility. The implication of that is the same implication of how you and I think about Jesus Christ. I think of him as all-powerful. I think of him as in heaven. I think of him as all-knowing, all of these omnis, the omni aspects of God in Christ. But we don't see that as our same way of ourselves. And the reason he starts with this fact is it's got to transform the way we think. It doesn't change our bodies. They're still as messed up as when we were born, and they get more messed up as we get older. But we've got to change the way we think about what happened to our souls. Because when you think about your identity, it impacts everything else you do. When you think about your identity in a foreign country as an American, it dictates how you behave in a foreign country. If you think about how you behave as fill-in-the-blank, as your family member, as graduating from your university, for me, graduating from my law school, that shapes your identity of who you are and how you act and what you do. And that's Paul's point. You start with the fact of what you are, and then behavior flows from that because identity shapes behavior. Point number two on your outline, there's a responsibility here. He says, because you got transformed, the first practical application is seek the things that are above. Where Christ is seated at the right hand of God, set your mind on the things that are above, not on the things on earth. So here is practical point on responsibility is, I'm going to make choices. Okay? So point one is the fact of my brand new soul identity and this fallen body I got. And number two, I'm going to make choices. And his advice here is seek those things that are God's, not those things that are of this world. The things that are of this world are all of the material things of money and politics and success and ambition and all those things. So that responsibility gives us our focus. As a practical point, living life about something that's going to happen is not something that we equate to as easily as mature adults. As a kid, it was much easier to relate to this, or it's easier for me to relate back to it. I knew as a practical application when I was in the eighth grade, God wanted me to be a lawyer. Take me to lunch, I'll tell you the whole story, but I knew in the eighth grade I was going to be a lawyer. My parents thought I was a little off in that regard because no one in our family was a lawyer. My parents didn't think there could be a good Christian lawyer. Uh, they thought those were oxymorons, but I knew I was going to be a lawyer. So all the way through high school, my plan was going to be a lawyer, and I even knew I was going to go to Baylor. I knew going through college, I was going to be a lawyer. So the closer I got to that thing that I knew God was going to make happen, I started doing things. I started reading books about law school. Uh, I started reading books about being a lawyer. I started looking for people who were Christian lawyers and trying to spend time with them. I started doing things today knowing what was going to happen to me tomorrow. And you think back to you or anybody else who's in their teens or 20s, and you're like, yeah, I can understand that. 
it's much harder as mature adults because what we are is what we are and is likely going to be what we be for the rest of our lives. So it's a little bit harder as adults, but that illustration of me and my youth, I hope helps you understand here what Paul's talking about as you live today knowing what you're going to be tomorrow. That's exactly what he's talking about. The resource to make, oh, cross-reference. Cross-reference Matthew 6, 33. In the Beatitudes, exact same concept. Christ taught the multitude. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and everything else will be given to you as well. In the book of Matthew, I spent a whole week talking about that little, entire lesson talking about that little passage. Uh, It continues with our next point. The way this happens is the resource at the end of verse 1, Christ, seated at the right hand of God. The point here is we can't do it on our own. This is not a matter of human will. This is not me firing you up and motivating you and sending you out in the world because I can't do that. And if I do, it evaporates while you eat lunch. The only way you and I can do this is through the power and the wisdom of Jesus Christ indwelling our soul through the Holy Spirit. So don't even think this is a matter of motivation that you have any hope to do on your own. The ability to do this is Christ. The reason why we get to in verse 3, the reason why it says, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. That sounds simplistic and also a little bit confusing, but I'm so glad it's there because this gives me a confidence in what we're talking about. Because it says, number one, the fact that the soul that I was born with has been executed. It is dead. It's gone. But it says my life, in other words, I could say my new life with my new soul is hidden with Christ, with God. What does that mean? That means no one on the planet Earth can see what happened to you and me. They can see the effects of what happened to me and you. They can see some negative things and say, I don't think that happened to you. But it means there's a hidden aspect of the transformation, the crucifixion of our old soul and the new birth of a new soul. And it says nobody can see it. It's hidden with Christ in God. That means when we get to heaven and look back with spiritual eyes at our transformation, you will be able to see with 2020 hindsight the metamorphosis of the caterpillar dying and the butterfly being born that is you're in my soul. But it says down here we can't see that. Our perspective is too limited. You want a little good cross-reference here? Cross-reference is 2 Corinthians 5.17. 2 Corinthians 5.17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. That leaves no room for interpretation. New creation means new birth, brand new, never existed before. The old things have passed away. The transliteration there is died. The old things have died, and behold, all things, all aspects of your soul have become new. That means the life of your soul, the way of thinking of your soul, the self-identity of your soul, all the different metaphysical aspects of what it means to be a self-realized human being, creation of God, have all become new. Every single aspect of it. Now, he then transitions down and he says what I call in your outline, revelation. And he says, all of this manifests in verse 4 where it says, when Christ who is your life appears, then you'll also appear with him in glory. 
This means that aspect of your changed soul is going to stay hidden until Christ comes again. If you want to cross-reference here, I'm not going to show you a verse on it, but you can read in your quiet time, Revelation chapter 9. Revelation chapter 9 is when Jesus Christ returns. And it says, the saints, we return with him clothed in white, pure linen. All of us come back with him when he comes back to start his, when he comes back for his second coming. And so that idea of this revelation is we just live in this mystery of what's happened to our soul. We can know about it. We can study it. We can live it. But we're not going to see it until he comes back. Great cross-reference and probably the greatest verse in the whole Bible on this we passed over in Galatians chapter 2.20. We covered this. I said, when we get to Colossians, I'm going to teach you this in more detail because Paul goes deeper at Colossians. But back in Galatians, I taught you 2.20. Paul says, I've been crucified with Christ. We could substitute our name there. I have been crucified. Even before I was born, my soul was crucified with Christ, and that old soul no longer lives. But Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, in other words, this new soul living in my old body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That means I am never going to understand all of the aspects of what that means. I'm never going to understand all the aspects of a new soul living in the same body I was born in that still has a fallen sinful aspect to it. So he then transitions because at this point, if he's just preaching his sermon, we say, okay, that's some great theology. That's some great philosophy. But I still got to wake up tomorrow and go to work. I still got to deal with that rascal of a spouse I'm married to. I still got to deal with this, and I still got to deal with that. How do I do it? He describes our bodies. And I'm just going to do a little quick, uh, quick cover here because he's going to go deeper in a few minutes. But he says, let's talk about where we struggle. Because where we struggle is this transformed soul that by willpower cannot transform our bodies. Okay. Our transformed souls are stuck in a body that loves sin. And so how do you deal with this? He gives us some impact here in our bodies. He says in verses 5, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On your outline, I describe this reminder as perverted love. Because if you think about it for a minute, the ideal that he started with in chapter 1 of why we don't get yanked up into heaven when we get saved is we're here to help other people, share our lives with them, and share our faith with them. That's love. That's altruistic love of other people. What he describes here is self-love. Self-love is sexual immorality. Self-love is what he calls impurity. Self-love is passion, uh, earthly passion. Self-love is evil desire. Self-love is I covet things, money, power, status, whatever. He says, you got to put that to death. That's in our physical bodies. We desire it. He says, you got to execute it. You got to execute it in a sense that our body loves it and therefore we don't want to do it. So how do you deal with that? He's going to give us some ideas here in a minute. He then transitions in verse 8 and he talks about what I call perverted relations because he talks about love as it relates to ourself versus others and as it relates to other people, he describes it as perverted relations. He says, but you also have to put away or execute anger, wrath, 
malice, slander, obscene talk, and lying. That's how we deal with other people. So he's basically said, as it relates to you dealing with yourself, loving yourself or loving other people in a perverted way, or how you deal with other people, loving them, sharing with them, giving to them, or what's up on the screen, talking bad about them, being mean to them, lying to them, talking profanity in front of them. All of those things, he says, execute them, put them away. Now, at this point of Paul's sermon, you say, sounds great, I failed my whole life. I can understand the ideal, I can understand the concept, I stink at it and I failed my whole life, I'm a miserable Christian, makes me wonder if I'm even saved. Paul says, hang on a minute, I can relate. He then does a little bit deeper dive. The reason he says we got executed, he gets to in verses 3 through 7. He says, on account of all of these things that I just described to you, perverted self-love, perverted dealing with other people, God's wrath is coming. In other words, everything I just read, God hates. God doesn't like it. And the corollary here is if God hates it, I ought to hate it too and I ought to commit to do whatever it takes to get away from those things. So he's saying it's not a matter of you executing those things. It's a matter of you realizing those things God finds offensive. He's going to give wrath to everybody who's not a Christian that does those things. And he says in verse 7, in these you two once walked, you used to act that way when you were living in them. So at that point you say, okay, Paul, what do I do? How do I live my life? And that's where you get to our last little point here of living resurrection lives. How do I live in our daily lives, Monday through Sunday, my resurrected life, because I've got this transformed soul. I can kind of sort of wrap my brain around it, but my body still craves sin. I can still get unjustifiably angry. I can still have a bad mouth. I can still do self-centered things, seeking self-pleasure that just focuses on me and not God or anybody else around me. So how do I do that? He gets us there at the end of verse 9. And it starts by realizing what our position is. And it says at the end of verse 9, seeing that you've put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self. This says, I've got choices to make. Every day of life is a day of a thousand choices. And the position I'm in is the choice to go down path A or go down path B. That's my choice. So my position is at the crossroads. And Paul says, I've put off my old self and its practices. Put off means like take them off like, like clothing, like dirty clothing. And I've put on clean clothing or new clothing. I've got choices of what I wear. I got choices of what I do. So Paul says my position is at the crossroad with choices to make. As you're going to see, I can get help with the choices. I can get motivation with the choices from God. I can get encouragement from God on the choices. But I got a choice to make. I got a fork in the road every day of my life in deep dive here. Now, let me give you some cross-references. The first cross-reference is Romans 6. Because Romans 6, Paul talked about this point. He says, we know our old self, my old soul, was crucified with him. So that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who has died has been freed from sin. 
Now, let me apply this. The biggest problem historically when slavery was abolished in the United States was not continuing racism. That was a big problem. But the bigger problem is those who had been slaves did not know how to live free. The biggest problem with the freedom of American slaves was the slaves did not know how to live free. They did not know how to have jobs that didn't involve slavery. They didn't know how to have relationships with the rest of society that weren't involved in a slave-type system. They didn't know how to live life. They hadn't learned it. It wasn't anything condemning of them. They just didn't have the experience. So what we had to do in order to take that group of people and make them truly free was they had to be taught what they could do. They had to be taught how they could live. They had to be taught what the opportunities were available to them. Now, that's where racism came in and created barriers to doing some of those things, but the starting point was they had to be changed in a life that used to be under slavery and a life that was free. It's the same thing for us. When you live a life a slave to sin, somebody has got to teach you how to stop living a life that's in slavery and live a life that's free. Now, it doesn't mean all the barriers go away. Just like with American slavery, there was prejudice barriers we still had to overcome. But you got to know, so Paul uses this, this symbolism of slavery to teach us what we've got to do. Now, at this point, I'm saying, yeah, Paul, sounds right, but I still got the problem of how I live my life. And the very next chapter, Paul says, we're all in the same boat. I talked to this when we covered Romans chapter 7. Romans chapter 7, 14 through 19, he says, I'm still a slave to sin. I don't understand what I do. I want to do the good stuff, and I sin. I don't want to sin, and I do it anyway. And I taught you this whole chapter talking about what it means when Paul struggles through this. Now, the great thing about Romans is it doesn't end at chapter 7. It culminates in one of the greatest chapters in the Bible, Romans chapter 8, and then has eight more chapters of what that means in life. And I taught you that book across about, I think we did like six weeks on it, because it was so significant. But the point here is we all struggle. It's not easy. And the point of Romans chapter 7 is if you think by willpower or you think by your intelligence or you think by your religiousity that you can pull yourself out of this, you're deluded. You can't do it. And so in Romans chapter 8, he tells us what the answer is. Here in Colossians chapter 3, he tells us what the answer is. And he goes on by describing from this position our progress. And he says in ver at the end of verse 10, this renewal, this new being, it says, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. What this means is on a daily basis, on an hourly basis, on a minute-by-minute minute basis, God the Father is changing our souls. This is huge, folks, to understand this because we view our conversion as a point in time in the past. This verse is teaching us, and other parts in Scripture support this, on a minute-by-minute minute basis, an hour-by-hour hour basis, God is changing our soul to help us deal with the fork in the road and the choices that we're facing. He says we're being renewed. You want a cross-reference? I told you, Romans told us the solutions to chapter 7 and the later solutions. 
or later chapters, he gets in Romans 12 this same point. Romans 12, 2 is your cross-reference. He said, don't be conformed to the pattern of this world. In other words, don't get hung up in the fact that you want to do the same sin over and over and over again because you like that sin, whether it's gossip or porn or lying or whatever it is. It says, don't get hung up in that pattern. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. The renewing of your mind is not what you do in church. It's not what you do in Bible study. It's not what you do in quiet time. Renewing of your mind is supernatural. It comes from God. Now, we can put ourselves in a position to make it easier for him to renew us, which is why we have quiet time. It's why we come to church. It's why we have Bible study. It makes us more susceptible to let him renew our mind, but it is a supernatural progress where he changes us. The partnership that this happens in is him, not us. It's a continual renewal by God. Now, the performance, uh, sorry, sorry, uh, the, the renewal is, sorry, the partnership is everybody. Next to the word partnership on your outline in the last page, write everyone. Because when he talks about this idea of renewal, our first point is, well, Pastor Greg might be renewed in order to do the great sermons he does on Sunday, but I sure don't feel renewed. Or, you know, fill in the blank who's a great Christian we know may be renewed because I see them getting better and stronger. I see myself following deeper and deeper into sin. Paul says in verse 11 of chapter 3, we're all the same. This is the same nationally, Greek and Jew. It's the same religiously, circumcised or not circumcised. That's Jew and Gentile. Uh, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free. And then that phrase I taught you earlier that's our theme, Christ is all, Christ in all. That means because Christ is in every one of us. Christ in us transforms us on a minute by minute, hour by hour, day by day basis. Now, how does this happen? I describe this as performance. The performance that makes this happen starts right down the word elected. Because he says, put on then as God's chosen ones. So it starts out by saying, God chose you. The reason why you understanding God choosing you deals with your first response. Because everything I've taught you at this point about having a mind, a soul that's transformed, and a body that's stuck in sin is, I can't do it. You say, I'm living in Romans chapter 7. I cannot stop sinning. I'm getting worse. I can't break it. I hate myself for it. I just can't get through it. Point number one says you're elected. That means God picked you. It doesn't mean you're a failure to God. It means despite your shortcomings, God still wanted you. And he chose you, and there's nothing we can do about it. He chose us, so elected means he chose me despite my sin nature. He chose me knowing my sin nature. That's a huge point. Number two, set apart. He describes in chapter 11, we are holy, which means set apart, and loved. So that means when he changed my soul, when he gave, when he executed my old soul and gave birth to a brand new soul, he made me different than everybody else in the world that he's not done that to, and he did it because he loves me. 
So he didn't set me apart to make me weird. He didn't set me apart to make me abused. He didn't set me apart to make me tortured as a Christian. He set me apart because he loves me. And then, so I'm elected, I'm set apart, and I'm different. And he says, put on, and he shows how I live. Compassionate heart, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing one another. Uh, and then he says at the very end of verse 13, above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. It's a nice little bookend with what Greg was talking about this morning about Hezekiah and the choices he made and how Hezekiah chose God first and other things followed. Same point here. What he's saying here is if you struggle with the choices that you're going to make, the practical things you run to are what's up on the screen. I want to do compassion. I want to show kindness. I want to show humility. I want to be meek. I want to have patience. I want to show true love. So it means if you're struggling with sin, this list says the choice I run to is helping other people. Notice, it's not getting me deep in theology. It does not say the way I make choices is I go memorize the book of Deuteronomy. Thank goodness, right? It doesn't say I live the Psalms on a daily basis. It doesn't say I memorize Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, right? It says the practical thing I do is I turn to where we started in Colossians chapter 1, the goal of my authentic Christianity, showing myself to other people and loving other people. Showing myself, showing my faith. Where he starts is where he ends here. That's the practical. I'm going to become more altruistic. I'm going to focus on other people, not just on myself and my anger, my pride, my selfish passions. The priorities that make this happen, he then gets to in verses 14 through 17. And I'll give you three little points here. He says, number one, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts which indeed you are called in one body. So the first priority is, I got to have the peace of Christ. That's a critical place to start when I'm living between Romans chapter 7, which is I suck, and all the rest of Romans, which is God is going to get me out of it. Right? The peace of Christ is, I may not understand it, but I've got peace of knowing I'm loved, I'm chosen, and I'm not condemned. Okay, it starts with the positive reality of I'm chosen, I'm loved, and I'm not condemned. And that peace then says, okay, God, I don't know how you're going to do it because I can't do it. I'm living in Romans chapter 7, doing stuff I don't want to do and stuff I don't understand why I do it, but I'm still drawn to it. He then says, number two, I'm going to focus on the word of Christ. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms like we did this morning, and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your heart to God. So when it talks about the word of Christ, it's talking about scripture. Because the reason I taught you the scarlet thread was so if I said, focus on the words of Christ, your focus wasn't on the red letter editions of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. I spent more than a year teaching you Genesis through Revelation so you could see Jesus Christ from before Genesis chapter 1, through Genesis chapter 1, through Exodus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, all the way through the judges, all the way through the prophets, all the way through the monarchy, all the way through the gospels. You see Jesus Christ from start to finish. So the word of Christ is Genesis through Revelation. That's why we come to church. That's why we do Bible study. That's why you're supposed to have quiet time every week like I'm supposed to have quiet time every week. 
So it's the peace of Christ to say, I'm going to stop beating myself up. The word of Christ means I'm going to know my Bible, love my Bible, and spend time in it. And it says in verse 17, whatever I do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. What does that mean? The practical application is this is why when we pray, the New Testament teaches, and I pray and a number of other people like Greg pray, we ask these things in your name, amen. It means the reason we pray that way is to say if we're asking for something, if we're going to be doing something, we're doing it for you, in you, and because of you. To do it in his name means I'm his emissary. Think about this. I could give you an analogy. If I said, you're going to do it in the name of the governor, Greg. If I said, you're going to do it in the name of the president. If I said, you're going to do it in the name of whoever. You'd be the emissary. You'd go in and say, I'm here on behalf of Governor Abbott. I'm here on behalf of President Trump. I'm here on behalf of whoever I sent you on behalf of. It would be the reason why you did something. It's the motivation for why you did something. It's the power behind why you're doing something because somebody else sent you to do it. It means I'm doing it not because I'm going to do it and say, yay, aren't I a great Christian. It means I'm doing it in his name for his purpose as his emissary. He's then going to transition here and he's going to go even deeper and say, okay, what does this mean as a spouse? What does this mean as a parent? What does this mean as an employee and employer? What does this mean as a neighbor? And he's going to do the rest of chapter 3 and all of chapter 4 in that deeper dive. I'll get there next week. But before I get there, let me give you some practical application of what this means. I've saved 10 minutes because I want this to be impactful. Our application is really simple. Number one, what does it mean to be co-crucified with Christ? Because we hear that and we just fly through it because we don't apply that to how we live Monday through Saturday or Sunday. What it means, if you think of yourself as Scripture sees you, is already having been crucified. And the reason we were crucified is because of our sin. Number one, you don't want to be crucified more than once, right? To be crucified is a horrible, horrible, horrible thing, which is why for Christ to undergo it is the most horrific thing to ever happen to a human being, particularly God himself, in the history of humanity. So the idea of going through something bad again, we don't want to do. That's our motivation not to sin. But co-crucified with Christ is also something that's already happened. My sin has already been judged. There's no room for shame there's no room for guilt. If I've got a sin, I'm going to address it. I'm going to confess it. I'm going to have a system of dealing with it. And I'm going to go on. So co-crucified because it's public means if I'm going to deal with my sin, I'm going to talk about it. This is the reason why if you've got a sin and your plan is I'm going to deal with it all by myself, you are doomed to failure. you got a sin problem, you talk about it with a buddy, you talk about it with a girlfriend, you talk about it with a uh, co-worker, with a counselor, with a pastor, with somebody, because crucifixion was public. So if you want to crucify your sin, you go public with it. As long as it's you and your brain, it will never be dealt with. So sin is in the past, it's public, and it was overcome. Because 
Every time this is mentioned in Scripture, it's not, you got crucified with Christ. The corollary in every single verse is, and therefore you're a new creation. You're raised from the dead as he was. It describes it in the context of crucified and died and resurrected. That means your soul is as good as already in heaven, even for the sin you committed yesterday, the sin you'll commit today, and the sin you'll commit tomorrow. So you say, okay, so I can do all the kind of sin I want? No, 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 no. It's not what I'm saying. I'm saying as far as your identity, it's already been is dealt with. So how do I deal with the choices in life that we just learned in Colossians chapter 3 I got to make? When I leave here, I got choices of where I go for lunch. Unless you're going to my parents' house for, for a small group. Uh, where you're going for this afternoon, how you're going to spend your time, what you're going to read or watch on TV, what you're going to do tonight, what you're going to do tomorrow. All these choices in life. Let me tell you how I have dealt with this. And I've dealt with this by the imagery that came to me going back to Genesis. I love the book of Genesis. If somebody says, teach me Bible study you never taught me, I teach Genesis before I teach Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. There's so much rich stuff there. And this really helped me. And it's the image of the Garden of Eden and the Tree of Life. Let me ask you this question. How many trees were in the Garden of Eden? How many? A lot, right. Normally when I ask that question, the answer is two. And I say, you haven't read Genesis. Because before you get to the two trees that are prominent, it says he created a whole bunch of them. Right? There's more trees on the whole planet, and there's trees in the Garden of Eden. The trees in Eden are a picture of choices. There are an infinite number of trees in God's creation. There's an infinite number of choices. God has given me a million or a billion trees to choose from, but there's two special trees. I got one that gives me life, and I got one that gives me death. So what are the other million trees for? Anything I want. I can climb them. I can paint them. I can chop them down and make a chair or a house out of them. I can do anything I want with those trees. I can make use of God's creation for any way that I want to. But the two I got to be careful about are the ones that give me life, the one that gives me life, and the one that gives me death. The one that gives me life was created to go back to on a daily basis and by eating of that tree have a transformed life. That tree shows up again in our Bibles. Do you guys know where that tree shows up again in our Bible? Anybody know? At the very end of Revelation, that tree shows up again in heaven. When we go to heaven, it's not eternity without time playing our harp and jamming with the angels. Right? There's a whole bunch of stuff in heaven. But what Revelation says at the very, very end of the book is that same tree shows up again for us to go back to and get life out of, get transformative life. It's the reason why Adam and Eve were created as immortal beings. Adam and Eve only experienced death when they ate from the wrong tree. 
Adam and Eve, like me and you, were created to be immortal. And the reason we know that is that tree shows up again at the Revelation. And our immortality is not just simply getting us out of this body. Our immortality is that tree in heaven that we all eat from, and there's a transformation. So, if I got that tree that's going to make me immortal, but I got another tree in heaven that if I eat from it, it's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. In other words, the tree that choices come from where there's sin. It's the tree of all the sins I just described earlier. It's the tree of all the sins that are described in the Bible. Now, if you think about that for a minute, our DNA draws us to that one tree, even though there's a million other trees, there's a million other choices I could make. I'm drawn like a magnet to that one tree, and it just happens to be sitting right next to the tree of life. And the reason it's there is because the choices we're supposed to make is the tree that gives us life or the tree that gives us death. And if I eat from the tree that gives me life, I've got a million or a billion other trees to enjoy, to climb, to paint, to sculpt, to make chairs and houses out of, to do anything I want. But it starts with the tree of life. So the way I have learned to deal with life, when I'm walking into my firm, when I'm walking into a lunch, when I'm walking into a client meeting, when I'm walking into court, when I'm walking anywhere, I'm going to have choices on the language I use, the things I say, the truthfulness of how I say it, all these different aspects of life. And in my mind, I say, which tree am I going to choose? That's my little phraseology, which tree am I going to choose? I don't even answer the question. I walk into court. I'll say a quick prayer, God be with me. Yeah. And I add, which tree am I going to choose? And I've done it now for about a decade since I got really, really deep in Genesis a number of years ago. And it's just my little way of dealing with life. Which tree am I going to choose? Now, a whole bunch of life's issues, like am I going to eat steak or am I going to eat fish? Those are other trees in Eden, right? Am I going to go to a movie with Natalie or are we going to go read something together, right? Those are other trees in Eden. Are we going to go on vacation or are we going to stay at home? Those are other trees in Eden. But on a daily basis, I'm coming back to God deep from the tree of life. I'm doing it in my quiet time. I'm doing it in my one-on-one -on -one Bible study time. I'm doing it with the other Christian men and women I surround myself with to get encouragement from. That's my avenue to the tree of life. And for the tree of death that draws me like a magnet... The only way to deal with Satan is the same way Jesus Christ dealt with Satan at the start of his ministry. I got to know scripture. I got to be able to put scripture in his face. And ultimately, I just have to make a choice. Am I going to choose life or am I going to choose death? So as we all deal with that magnetic pull to that tree in the garden that wants to get us, what he's trying to say is, on a minute-by-minute, hour-by-hour basis, I'm making choices, but it's not in static. He's renewing my mind. Re the process of renewal means he's given me a different perspective. He's given me a different appetite. He's given me a different desire. He's given me something different on a daily basis to deal with that. Because the temptation of going out with some other lawyers that want to go to a strip club after court out of town on Friday 
is a different temptation than with a client that I'm tempted to boast about something I didn't do, right? Totally different temptations. Nevertheless, a sin pull. And so the transformation of my mind in Scripture means he transforms me to deal with this temptation one way, this temptation another way, this temptation another way, and all I'm saying is, which tree am I going to choose? Lord, help me make the right choice. Lord, give me the strength to make the right choice. God, what choice would you make since you're in me and I'm in you? And I'm not dealing with the big theology of life. I'm dealing with which tree am I going to choose right here and right now? That makes it so much easier than trying to figure out these huge metaphysical questions about why am I drawn to that sin or am I going to be condemned for it? I'm thinking trees in the Garden of Eden and the decision right in front of me right now. If I think small like that, my little pea brain can be pulled through it by God, who is the creator of the universe and all-powerful and all-knowing and all-loving of me even despite my sin and all-loving of you despite your sin. Are you with me so far? Yes. Say yes or I'm going to make you late to lunch. Yes. All right, good. Now, come back next week. We're going to do a deeper dive into marriage, parenting, jobs, and all the other cool stuff. This was the introduction to more cool stuff next week, and we'll get there next Sunday. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your time to come and study your word, to come and study ourselves, to come and study ourselves that relates to you. And we leave just in awe of your love for us and the people that you've created in us and the way you've created this world that we live in and the way you've created eternity for us. And we just say we're unworthy. We love you. We want to be like you. Help us this week. Help us today. Help us this afternoon and tonight to pick the right tree. We can't do it of our own will. We can't do it of our own intelligence. It's only through your spiritual eyes, your wisdom, it's only through your power, it's only through your discernment that we have the ability to do anything. So we yield ourselves to you as our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And in your power, in your name, we ask these things. Amen. If you can stick around, stick around and visit with our missionary friends. And uh, for the rest of you, we'll see you next week. Bye-bye. This has been a presentation of the Biblical Foundations Bible Study. Online at biblicalfoundationsbiblestudy.com. All rights reserved.